last advice. But anyway, not me personally. Uh, but one of the great things about the beginning, the first discourse, the first sermon uh, that Moses gave to his people, as we look at his kind of last counsel, his last advice, his last words to the people of Israel. This took place over a series of time, 38 years after they'd gotten to the promised land only to be turned back. And so Moses, instead of just saying hi to a bird, we always have adventures here at AIC, Uh, Moses, instead of just telling the people what to do, which is easy for us, right? It's, It's much easier just to tell people what to do than it is to walk through the journey with them. It's very simple to say, do that, and that's it. But Moses chose, as his time on earth was coming to an end and his, the promised land was in sight, and Moses, as you saw in the text, knew he wasn't going. He chose to remind the people of Israel where they'd been and who God is. And so he takes them through what Bill Bryson would call a short history of nearly everything. And that's where we find ourselves today, at the beginning of the end, at the beginning of Israel's journey toward what God has promised them and what God would fulfill. But Moses does so by looking at the reality of the Israelites' heart condition. He examines why they were there 38 years later. Have any of you ever made a mistake that cost you 40 years? I mean, we've made big mistakes. But can you imagine doing something so drastically disobedient that it takes 40 years to recover from? For us today, most of us, when we think of that, the only mental picture, the only mental connection we can come with, well, if you've made a mistake so bad that it's going to take 40 years to recover from, there's a place for you. It's called jail. But for the people of Israel, it was called being lost and having to learn All over again, theoretically, they were supposed to be learning who God is. And that's where we find ourselves this morning, in this wonderfully rich picture of God's greatness and man's frailty. So let's pray, and then we'll dig into the text. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how you continue to use people and love people that don't deserve your love. Uh, and don't deserve your patience, nor do we deserve your justice. But you are God, and so we trust you, and we love you, and we ask that you would open our hearts to your word this morning, that we would not be distracted, and that, Lord, through your word, we would have the power to choose a life that is truly radical. In your name I pray. Amen. How many of you, if I pointed, uh, Chi Ming will know exactly what I'm pointing to, uh, but if, if I pointed to this right here, how many of you would know what that's called? It's your Achilles heel, right? Why is it called your Achilles heel? Does anyone know the story? Back in high school, most of you probably had to study Greek mythology, right? And there is this awesome warrior named Brad Pitt, Okay. <laughs> Not really, but as far as God's among men, you know, he's not a bad choice. But anyway, there's this God among men, almost completely. His mom was a nymph. He'd been dipped, depending on which version you read, he'd been dipped in water that made him pretty much immortal, except 
for one little part, his heel, Achilles' heel. And Achilles was this phenomenally great warrior, fearless. He was a little aloof at times. He would only fight when he felt like it and when the cause mattered to him. But, you know, that was most of the, the heroes of that day. They were pretty self-absorbed. But one guy shot one arrow, and it changed everything. And according to tradition, it changed the whole scope of the war. And his name was Paris. And with one arrow into the heel, they were able to slay the mighty Achilles, the man that seemed like he had no weakness. Fast forward thousands of years, and if you follow the National Basketball Association in America, you notice that yesterday a man named Kobe Bryant, among men he is a basketball god. He cannot be stopped. He's been playing in the NBA since he was literally 18 years old. I've grown up watching him grow up in a very public light. And this season has been tremendously difficult, but he has in every way carried the team on his shoulders. He's done everything right. But one thing he couldn't control, the strength of a 35-year-old body, or however old he is, roughly that. And sure enough, he jumped, he fell, and there was a rip. And Kobe Bryant's season, if not career, has now come to an end because of his Achilles heel. He's not the man he was just a minute before that. He's not the man that can look at a basketball court and say, let's play because this is fun and I can do things that only one other guy can maybe do. And then I think about us. And I think about us as far as what are those things in our lives that become tendencies that keep us from the life that God has promised us right here in his word. And why do I know that God has promised you and me? Because we're, we're hanging out in Deuteronomy. That's really far removed from current times, right? So how is it applicable today? Well, if you flip forward to the New Testament, the same thing that God promised to the people of Israel, Jesus promises to those who would believe in him and be his disciples. I'm not just saying I want Christians. I'm saying we're calling ourselves disciples. Those that every day are growing to seek to be more like the person of Jesus Christ in every area of our lives. And what did Jesus say about why he came? He said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. The first part of our title of the series on Deuteronomy, life. God gave us his son that we might have life. God set apart the people of Israel, so that they might have life. But Israel, much like you and I, had a bit of an Achilles heel. Well, what, what am I saying an Achilles heel could be? Well, maybe some of you have a propensity, a, a tendency, if you will, towards self-destructive behavior. Uh, you might, in the privacy of your own home, look at things on the internet you know better than to look at. You might choose to consume more of unhealthy things, this can range from alcohol to McDonald's, that you know isn't good for you. And remember, our bodies are a temple. You could choose to use words that you know aren't building others up, but what ends up happening is they harm your very testimony, your presence as a Christian, as a disciple in this world. 
It's an Achilles heel. It's something that as we continue to seek to follow the Lord down that straight path, we keep getting diverted by ourselves. We keep getting diverted by that one thing that Satan grabs onto and we keep slipping back into. It could be attitude. It could be, as we'll see later, temper. It could be unwillingness to sacrifice and surrender. It could be the very thing that every one of us in some way wrestles with, the idea of control. We all want to control what's going to happen, right? We all want to know that our life, somehow, we can make it better because it's about us. And somewhere in the depths of our minds, we think that's going to help. And then we look at the story of Israel, and we find first God makes a promise. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go take possession as the Lord your God of your fathers has told you to. Now, remember, God hadn't just told this to the people of Israel that are currently becoming the people of Israel. This was a promise that had been passed down from generation to generation to generation, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Moses, okay? And God told them through Moses, don't be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did in Egypt. You remember that place? Before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you. Yet you wouldn't go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he's brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Now, we see here two things, and we're going to look basically at three character sketches today, but we've got to have the picture. First, we see here, let me point at the right screen, that God has promised the people that he was to make Israel the very nation of Israel that is being formed, that's what Deuteronomy is, a history of the formation and foundation of Israel, he'd promised them that the land, the promised land, was theirs for the taking and that he would go before them. He himself will fight for you. Now, for some of us, it's hard to imagine God fighting for us because one, what do we fight about today? other than maybe fights with coworkers, with our spouse, with social kind of situations, we're not facing the same kind of threats that the people that would become Israel were facing. However, for them, they had been slaves. They had literally been subjugated to the people of Egypt who were not nice about how they treated Israel. We know this to be true. Read through and you see it. And God miraculously doesn't just get them out. He does so boldly painting a picture of his great power. Through everything from bloody water to frogs and toads to eventually the death of every firstborn son in the land of Egypt. No human could do those things. God did to protect and take care of and fight for his people. Right? That was 38 years ago. Not so long ago. Most, if you've been alive that long, you can probably remember almost that far. And at that time, they were telling the stories over and over and over again. They didn't just have to read it in a book. They would tell it to each other. Then, 
they got up to the promised land. We'll come back to this. And they rejected God. So what did he do for that next season of life for them? Oh, nothing big. Just miraculously led them by a pillar of clouds by day and a pillar of fire by night. Again, you know, just normal things that we see all the time, right? This is God. And he reminds them that it's me that has gotten you this far. You took a detour. I kept leading you. I was faithful when you were not. I am God and I have a plan even when you're not exactly obedient. Israel was seeing this truth in action. They knew God's who he says he is. But unfortunately for them, they wouldn't go up. They rebelled. Israel chose the safe route. They looked at the people. If you look at the next verse here, you see they wouldn't go up. Our, where are we going up to? Give us the land of the Emirates. The people are greater and taller than we. I get that. I'm not a particularly tall man. I had lunch with two of our uh, bigger, taller guys on, on Friday, I think it was, and they were standing there, and then they had the audacity to stand on a step. And I looked up at them. I'm like, well, I hope I don't make them mad, which I didn't. We had a great, uh, great lunch. But I can imagine looking up at these men and these people and thinking, woe to me, there's no way in my own strength I could take them. There's no way in my power I could defeat this people. Because remember, when you take over a land, you do have to get rid of the people in the land. They were known to be sinners. They were known to be godless. And God was delivering them into the hands of Israel. But the people took one good look at them and human nature set in. And those wonderful words that we never want to hear our kids say, but yet we hear it all the time among adults and children, I can't do it. It's too hard. That's exactly the spot they were supposed to be. In any one of our lives, that's exactly where we should find ourselves. Saying, God, I can't do it. It's too hard for me. Good. Then maybe you'll learn to rely and listen to the Lord. Then maybe finally we can get somewhere. But instead, Israel looked and said, we can't do it, so we're just not going to try. We are going to choose the safe route over the faith route. And that's what they did. And the Lord heard their words and he was angered. And he swore not one of these men of this evil generation. God doesn't mince words here. Notice he's ticked. He is not happy with their choice. The land was in front of them. God had miraculously delivered them. And they said, God, you can't do this. God, you're not big enough to handle this land. Even though you delivered us from Egypt. From Egypt, even though you parted this big giant sea, even though you've guided us and you've fed us and you've done all these things, you're not, or the, he hadn't done all that yet, but he had gotten them out. And in the spite of all that, they looked and they had the audacity to say, God, you can't do it. God, you're not big enough. And God looked at them and he judged them harshly and he said they, they were evil. But the thing is, with Israel, they came to a line in the sand. They were in the desert. They came to a line in the sand where they could choose to follow God 
and they could choose to do something completely ludicrous, completely radical, and completely outside of their ability to do anything about other than lose. There was absolutely no way this little burgeoning nation of Israel would succeed against people that were way taller than them and way bigger than them. And so they said, God, you can't do it. And their rebellion, their choice to say, my God is this big, he is too small to do this, cost them. And so they turned and they went the other way. What happened? Israel chose the safe route over the route of faith. Israel chose to say, God, you can't. Instead of saying, okay, God, if you tell me to do this, you're big enough to handle it. What about us? When we think about our lives, have we ever told God, no, you couldn't possibly do this? Have we ever said to God, there's no way you could work out all the details to bring these pieces back together. It's just too messy. I've messed it up too much. It's too broken. But you see, God, we worship him as our redeemer. And we worship him as our king. And we sing about nothing being too difficult for him. And yet our lives continue to say that, well, maybe that is too difficult for you, or maybe it's just too costly for me. Maybe the risks are too big for me, God, because I couldn't do that because I don't want to look foolish in the eyes of the world. I don't want to be known as that guy that's weird or that guy that's radical. But what does Paul say? If you go back in your Bible all the way forward to 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 1, he says this. He says, for the message of the cross, the very message of Jesus, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Jews demand signs and they got them and they still wouldn't go into the promised land. Greeks look for wisdom and they came up with characters like Achilles. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greek, that means anyone is welcome, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Can I get an amen? Because here's what that means for us today. The enemy is too, too tall, and Israel's God was too small. But for us, whatever you are facing right now is not too big for God. And it doesn't matter if we look crazy in the eyes of the world. Praise the Lord! How cool is that to be known as weird? How exciting is it to be known as odd? I watched a movie last night, a very spiritual movie. It really wasn't. It's called Here Comes the Boom. Have any of you heard of it? It's a funny movie about a guy that wants to save his high school's music program. Okay? And this guy realizes that there's no funding. Schools all over the world wrestle with this. There's just suddenly no more money to pay for what they consider extra programs. And so this guy says, well, I was a good wrestler a long time ago, and he's now kind of fat and chubby and out of shape. He says, I'll get involved in mixed martial arts. 
and I'll just let people beat up on me until I make enough money in the ring to bring back the program. And you get through the movie, and it's one of those great feel-good, rocky feel stories, but it's funny. And you get to the end, and he fights this guy that never loses. And suddenly, he realizes that he's got an entire school behind him. He's got all these people supporting him and cheering him on. And you know that energy that comes when, for, for instance, when I know you guys are listening and really tracking with me and I make sense as opposed to... It's encouraging and it spurs me on. And in the movie, this guy, Kevin James is his name in real life. He fights this just hunk of a man and somehow he wins and the place goes nuts And everyone that watches that movie, we feel good about ourselves and we love the story of the underdog because we want the underdog to win. But you see, in this world, you and I are underdogs because in this current age we find ourselves, Satan does have dominion. Satan does have the ability to tempt. He does have the ability to put before us the opportunity to not go down the straight and narrow but to turn off to the left or to the right. And many, many, many people choose to follow his way instead of the way of the Lord. To choose to follow the way of the Lord means we are an underdog, but it means we're exactly where we should be because the enemy isn't too small. Our God is way taller. And if we believe that, We know the foolishness of the cross is all we need. We know that there is nothing more important than the person of Jesus Christ and to give hope to this world in desperate need of a Savior. Maybe you need that hope. Maybe you need the chance to embrace a life where you know you are fully His and your life suddenly has meaning that you've never had because you've gripped so tightly onto that one thing that's yours. Moses did the same thing. Because when you look here, Israel chose that. Well, then Moses raised his arm. You go back to Numbers. And he struck the rock twice with his staff. And water gushed out and the community and everybody drank. And it all seemed good. But you see, the thing was, God told Moses to speak to the rock. The reason this is significant was because Moses was angry at the people. Moses was frustrated with the situation in his life. He was frustrated with people that know the right thing to do and they don't do it. You ever felt like that? You ever walked around or you ever worked with people that you know they know the right thing and they continue to choose the wrong path and it makes everything worse? Well, Moses, in a fit of what we would call righteous indignation, he had every right. He didn't just talk to the rock. He hit it. And I say, go Moses. That's what I want to think. Show them. You tell them they're idiots. And that's what he did. But you see, God told him to speak to the rock. God told him to do what he said. God tells us in his word that justice is his. And it's not the only time that Moses may have given in to a temper tantrum. There was this first set of Ten Commandments, if you remember them. And Moses got so angry at the people, what happened? He chucked them down so hard they broke. Now, 
If you pay attention to the rest of that story, what else happened? The first set, who carved out the stone and then put the words on it? God did. Who did the second set? Moses. Almost as if God is saying, okay, Moses, I gave you one set. You decided to break it. You decided to let yourself deal with this instead of me. Your turn to carve out these tablets out of stone. You see how it feels. And that's what Moses had to do. Moses' Achilles' heel kept him from entering the promised land. God's leader for God's chosen people chose to act out of his own behavior, chose to act out of his own anger. And instead of following the Lord and obeying what seemingly is a simple task, he did something far worse. He did not trust in God enough to honor him as holy in the sight of the Israelites. If you are a leader of anyone, this verse should hurt. It's so real and so precious. Because as leaders in anywhere, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, we are to make God holy in every part of our lives, in every thought, in every action, in every Facebook interaction, in every area of life, God is to be seen as holy. And Moses, the leader of God's chosen people, the leader of the people that were to be God's voice to the world, in a moment of anger, didn't honor him as holy, didn't worship him with every part of his life. And it wasn't just a 40-year mistake. It kept him out of the promised land. God invites us to give him all of us. He says, I know what's best. My promises are true and they're faithful. He gives us the boat. He gives us the oars, but he trusts us to row. He allows us to obey. And for Moses, he didn't do it. His life wasn't a living sacrifice, and he made a bad situation worse. He chose indignation. He chose his own moral high ground over obedience. And so often, we want justice ourselves instead of saying, Lord, here's my life. I'll let you make a mockery of me. I'll let you not make sense of it. I'll let you do whatever you want, but my life is yours. Moses learned the hard way that when God calls a leader to obey and they don't, there are consequences. King Saul learned the same thing. King David learned the same thing. You and I, if we're honest, have made mistakes as well. And Moses is just such a great example of that. It wasn't that he didn't love the Lord, but in the moment of testing, in the moment when he had the chance to demonstrate the holiness of God yet again to his people, he chose to do it himself. And we do that. But then there's this one more guy. There's this one more person. There's actually two more people mentioned in the story, and we'll get to Joshua in later weeks. But there's this guy, Caleb. I love Caleb. Joshua gets a whole book. Caleb gets a few verses. Now, Joshua went on to succeed Moses and lead the people, and he was amazing. Except Caleb. Everybody was going to the promised land except for Caleb and Joshua, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, the promised land, 
And to him and to his children, I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly, if you've got your Bibles open, underline that word, wholly. That gives you a picture of what God is looking for in his people. It doesn't just give you a picture, it flat out tells you. It's not a secret. He has wholly followed the Lord. Well, what's the background? If you remember when they first saw the promised land, they sent 12 spies in to check it out. Now, I've always wondered, why did they really need spies to go check it out? If God said he was given it, what was the point? Even in that, couldn't they have just said, God, let's go get them? I don't know, but it sure always made me wonder, if God has already promised the land, why didn't they just go in? Instead, they gave fear a name. And they walked in and they saw giant grapes, is the mental picture I have, and all this great fruit and things, and everything was good. And then they saw the people that were big and strong. And they said, we can't do it. And they turned away, except for two, Caleb and Joshua. And in Numbers 14, 24, we're told that because of my servant, Caleb has a different spirit. I love that. And follows me wholeheartedly. I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit. I want us to camp out here for a second because you see something about Caleb. When you radically turn your life over to the Lord and say, take my life and let it be wholly consecrated to thee, there you are different. There's something different about you. The things that matter to this world don't seem so significant to you. Brennan Manning says it like this. And uh, Brennan Manning is one of my all-time favorite authors, a man that knew pain and knew suffering and also knew the Lord and had grown in tremendous ways over a very painful life. And he's talking about this idea of the countercultural lifestyle, one who has that different spirit about him. And, and by the way, Brendan Manning actually passed away yesterday, and he's left a legacy of some phenomenal books, and some of his words are appropriate today. Naturally, the countercultural lifestyle, simplicity of life, purity of heart, and obedience to the gospel will take us to the same place it took Jesus Christ, to the cross. All roads lead to Calvary, for we preach Jesus Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and absurdity to Gentiles, but to those who are called Christ the power and the wisdom of God. We've talked about that. Simplicity, purity, and obedience to the word will leave us weak and powerless in the world's eyes because we can no longer call upon our possessions and our privileged positions of authority and security. We will be subject to derision and outrage because authentic discipleship is a life of supreme madness. Injury and insult are promised to those who labor for the sake of righteousness. Paul's word to the Galatians is utter folly to our culture. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. A Christian living in the world, but not of the world, is a sign of contradiction to the compromises that many within the church have settled for. The disciple of Jesus will be made to look and feel like a fool, yet fools for Christ formed the early church. And as that tiny band of believers grew, the world witnessed the power in such foolishness. In the words of Paul in Romans 12, too, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, a different spirit. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Maybe, just maybe, we're asking the wrong question. Instead of asking God, what's your will for my life, are we asking God, is my life all yours? Instead of saying, God, I need you to do this for me, are we saying, Lord, here's my life. It's all yours. Caleb did. Caleb saw the giant men. I love that God looked at a short guy and said, you can take them. Did it with David too. God favors short people. He says, lo, I am with you always. Caleb had a different spirit and followed the Lord wholeheartedly. He was fully committed to the way of the Lord. It's an invitation to follow radically. Our church is taking a step of faith that we talked about last week in the annual general meeting. We have increased our budget in a time when that's not necessarily a safe risk. Because economically speaking, rents are going higher. The cost of living, Hong Kong is now by one survey the most expensive city in the world depending on which matrix you use. All these things come together. And yet we've said, we are going to step out in faith, raise our budget 6.7%, and we're going to bring on another staff so that we can continue to invest in making disciples of all nations. And that's where we're headed. And so my invitation to you is, what if each of us in this room said, Lord, it doesn't make sense, but I'm going to find ways to sacrificially give 7% more this year. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I promise you this, you can't outgive God because it's all his anyway, right? And I know Mike's talking about money and pastors aren't always supposed to do that, but who cares? The word does, so I will. My point is simple. What if we were so surrendered to him, we started saying, well, I don't really need that and I've got to do that. I've got to look at possessions and stuff and power and prestige and control and say, Lord, those things are yours, not mine. You keep them. You take them. This is your life, not mine. I want to be known as a man that had a different spirit like Caleb. What about you? There was a a paper found in Zimbabwe years ago by, uh, I don't know who found it, but it had been written by a pastor Uh, And it was found shortly after this pastor had been martyred. And it was a powerful picture called The Call to the Unashamed. And instead of me just reading it to you, these aren't his words because it was found after his death. But I'd like you to watch and I'd like you to consider, is this the kind of relationship with Christ you have? Are you living the life that Caleb was journeying on, a life full of adventure for the Lord that led him straight to the promised land? Let's watch together. I'm a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away or be still. My past redeemed, my present makes sense, my future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame vision, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. 
I no longer need preeminence, position, promotion, applause, or popularity. I don't have to be right first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience. I am uplifted by prayer and labor empowered. My face is set, my grade is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, my God reliable, my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of my adversaries, negotiate at the table of my enemy or ponder at the pool of popularity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I've stayed up, thought up, prayed up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. Did you say that? The man that wrote that gave his life for the sake of the gospel. I don't know any more of his story. No one really does. But the man that wrote that knew the scriptures. Because they weren't just his words boldly proclaimed. They were straight out of scripture. A man that said, a life hid in Christ. Not I, but Christ in me. That is a life worth living. Ladies and gentlemen, today I'm going to give you a bold invitation that I will keep giving you as long as I am your pastor. I want to invite you on a life of adventure, a life that says my life doesn't matter. Save Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to walk the streets of Hong Kong, of Manila, of Beijing, Shanghai, Cleveland, Ohio, anywhere in between, saying, I am a disciple, whatever that means. Sometimes we say, yeah, I would give my life like that pastor did because it's easy to give our life because then we don't have to live with the consequences. Maybe for you the journey involves walking today with the Lord completely. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that we would be a church known as holy, devoted disciples of yours. I look at Caleb, and I want to be known like that. A man who had a different spirit, a spirit that is completely surrendered to whatever you have for my life. Lord, it's so easy to get caught up, to be compromising, just because this is the way the world does it, and so that makes it okay. But today, please, let us cross that line and walk with you completely and wholeheartedly. In your name I pray, amen.